handful of years ago, uh, had the privilege of having my breath taken away by a member of our church. Uh, had been, had known this member for a long time and uh, she had been going through a tremendous illness that uh, for years, uh, not, not years, but over a year at the point that I met with her, uh, it was out of the blue and it was debilitating. She couldn't go to work, couldn't hold the job down regularly, couldn't really leave the house. It was causing her to be dizzy very regularly. And it was a very difficult season. And, and I, I got to see the church come around this person and love on this person, care for this person, show up at their doorstep with meals, just go on walks together. And, and I've watched this whole season play out as a church. And it was uh, difficult to say the least. And then one day I was meeting with this person and uh, I, I just checked in. I'm like, how are you? How, are you? how can I pray for you? What do you need? And she said to me, she said, Rafe, I would not trade this for the world this last year because of what God has formed in me. And it seems like such a simple thing, maybe a Christian cliche almost, but having been in it with this person and seen how difficult and how many tears were shed and how many people were praying for immediate healing and how long it had gone on, far longer than anyone experienced, in that moment, I, I had my breath taken away. I, only on two other occasions have I seen someone say anything remotely close to that that's hit me that way. Tremendous suffering and then getting not even all the way through it, just right in the midst of it, saying I wouldn't change this for the world because of what God's pouring in me. Each and every one of us in this room has some level of suffering that we're enduring right now. I know that's the case because we're Christians, we read the Bible and we all live in a fallen world and we all live with, among sinners. And by the way, chief of sinners is right here. It's us, right? We all bring sin and brokenness into the world that contributes to all the pain we experience. Which means that right now, you all have a lot going on in your life. I have a lot going on in my life. Pain is real. Relationships are difficult. Family is difficult. Jobs are difficult. Sometimes you, you, you come down with illnesses and you didn't even, you, you had no idea this was coming, but all of a sudden your whole world is turned upside down. Today, what I need from you as I preach this message is I need you to take everything that is going on in the reality of your life, I need it right here in the front of your mind. Because this text can be a text that we read as a historical narrative and have no touch point with. And if we do that, we would miss everything the Lord wants to teach us tonight. And so I'm asking you very specifically to take a moment, do a little inventory. What's happening that's causing you pain, hurt, distress? What's causing you to lay awake at night and in your, in your best moments to cry out, why God? Because that means you're going to God with it. But to cry out, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? I need all of that right here on the front of your mind tonight for this to make any sense to us. One of the greatest witnesses we have to a watching world is the way in which we suffer, the way in which we struggle. When a Christian suffers joyfully, pointing others towards Christ in the midst of their hardship, it's, it sends reverberations out from you that everyone who's around you looks in and can see and feel. And it's like they can touch the gospel on display. It's very easy to love Jesus when everything is going really well. It's very difficult to exert faith when things are falling apart. But that's where faith is most clearly seen. 
because that's where you're being stretched and, and the Lord is asking you, cling to me. That's what your faith is always about. I know you're in this storm, cling to me. And when others look in on your life and they see you clinging to the Lord joyfully, not flippantly like you're, you don't feel pain. No, Christians emotionally engage with the real life and the real world and the real dangers and the real troubles and the real trials. We're in it emotionally, right? We're not stoics off in the distance pretending we have no problems. No, we're engaged meaningfully. We're crying real tears. And yet in the midst of our tears, we're singing joyfully to the Lord. And that causes the world around us to stumble and take a second look at our life. The way you suffer joyfully is one of the most powerful witnesses you have to the Lord in your life. We're in the book of Acts. We're going verse by verse through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, great study. We've been in it for over three weeks now. And as we've seen, Acts chapter 16 is three conversion stories. And they're lined up side by side for a reason, so that we can see that the gospel is for everybody. Doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, doesn't matter how much money you had or don't have, doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody. The first conversion story was a wealthy international businesswoman named Lydia. You know what she needed? She needed Jesus. The next one was with a young slave girl who was stuck in human trafficking and was possessed by demons. You know what she needed? Jesus. And now today we meet the third conversion story in Acts chapter 16, and it's this jailer. It's this Philippian jailer. Middle of the road, regular guy living in Philippi. He's a jailer. You know what he needs? He needs Jesus too. That's what Acts chapter 16 is about. And what we're gonna discover today is the power of God made manifest specifically through the joyful suffering of the saints. Turn with me in Acts chapter 16. Let's start in verses 19. I'm gonna back up a little bit. Kenson dug a little bit into my passage last Sunday, so a bit of repeat if you were listening from last week's sermon, but that's good. We need this sometimes. So Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 25. Paul has just freed a young slave girl from demon possession, and the town is in an uproar about it. Verses 19. But when her owners, the slave girl, when her owners saw that their hope of gain, financial gain, was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, stripped them down naked in the crowd, and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Let me read that last phrase again. And the prisoners were listening to them, singing hymns. I want to consider this story, and we're going to go through the details of it really slowly, and perhaps even a little gruesomely, because I need you to see this text. Uh, so much just happened in those few verses that it's very easy to just kind of skim over the depths of the horror that we just read. And in fact, what some commentators would say is this is the most amount of suffering seen in the New Testament outside of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
This was tremendous suffering. And I want to make sure we understand what just happened. First of all, Paul and Silas have just freed a young woman out of human trafficking and demon possession. Everyone should be celebrating. They've just done a remarkable, amazing miracle, the, the work of God through them. And the first thing they know is that people are pulling them by their collars and dragging them through a crowd into the middle of the town square. Now, hopefully that never happens to any of you. But I can imagine putting myself in that moment of the high of seeing this young girl freed, finally, and then being dragged by men who mean to beat you through a town. Crowds begin to gather around them. They feel the, the strength of the hand on their collar. They grab them. They pull them into the middle of the town. It's becoming a riot. It's becoming a protest. Now, one of the things we're going to see later is this was completely illegal. Paul was a Roman citizen. You can't drag a person into town and start beating them without a trial if you're a Roman citizen in those days. But the, re the fact that they did it means that the, the riot and the protest was so loud that Paul's voice could not even be heard over the raucous noise of the protest saying, wait a second, I'm a Roman citizen, you can't do this. It was getting crazy and they were beginning to beat him. They strip off his and Silas's clothes in the middle of this town. This is an act of shame. They're intending to shame Paul and Silas to embarrass them in a public space. They then begin to beat them with rods. The text says that when they were beaten with many rods, it goes out of its way to explain that this was not a light slap on the wrist. This was punishment and inflicted over and over again. The punishment they endured would have left their back with very little skin on it. Perhaps would have left them maimed in some way for the rest of their life. Blood would have been going down onto the streets and the protesters and the people who were there to, to do harm to them. They would have been stepping in the blood that was spilling out from their back over and over. Likely they'd barely be able to lay down on their back that night. It would take weeks for them to heal in any, meaningfully, in any meaningful way. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 actually references this, this, this moment. He's talking to the Thessalonians. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Later on in his life, when he's writing other letters to other churches, he's reminding them of how hard this moment was for him when he was in Philippi and beaten and treated shamelessly. Now again, he was a Roman citizen. This was highly illegal. We actually are only going to get through verse 20, uh, verse 34 today. But the rest of the verse, chapter 16, I encourage you to go home and read on your own and, and begin to understand how illegal this was. And once they realized he was a Roman citizen, they tried to back away from the evil they had just done. It should not have been done. They throw Paul into a prison. Now, we need to know a little something about Roman prisons in a province like Philippi and what that would have been like for him. It says he was thrown into the prison, and then it says that the guard was told to keep them safe. That's essential language to say, uh, don't let anything happen to these people. In other words, in that day, for a jailer, if, if they let their prisoner get away, it was the jailer's life for the prisoner's life. That's the job of the jailer in that day. If a, if a prisoner escapes under a jailer's watch when he was told to keep watch, jailer's life for the prisoner's life. And so what does he do? He puts him in the inner prison. That's what the text says. Goes into the inner prison. Archaeology has shown us how Roman prisons were. They had three corridors to them, three sections to them. The first one was called the communioria. 
where the prisoners had light and air. So imagine a prison, you walk into it, the first section, those prisoners, not too bad, they're in jail, they get a little bit of light and air. The second section in was called the interioria, which was shut off by strong iron gates and had bars and locks on it. Finally, there was the teluanum, which was the dungeon for executions. No light, likely filled with rats, completely cut off. The darkest of the dark. Bleeding and agonizing pain, humiliated, alone, in darkness. Nobody would think this was a place that revival was about to break out. And yet in one commentator's words, the greatest revival that we see in the New Testament is about to break out in that exact dark pit. We cannot always understand suffering. Most of us want to ask the question, why, far too early? And that's the wrong question to ask for a Christian. Because the Lord has his purposes. And oftentimes you can't see those purposes until many years later where you look back with hindsight and you see all the ways the Lord changed you and changed the people around you and, and grew things in the right trajectory. Most of us want to ask the question why far too early when what God is asking us to do is to cling to him in new ways and stretch our faith. Verse 25, they're in this dark jail and all of a sudden we read this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. How beautiful must those songs have been. You know, I imagine these jailers, and I imagine that they saw in the middle of the day these two men dragged after being beaten down the corridor. They probably, the men in the first section of the jail, could still see the stain of blood going down to the deepest, darkest corner of the jail. They saw them come in, and they probably had seen other men go there before because that was the place of execution. So they knew they have about 24 hours to live. That's probably the situation. And they had seen them, and and they probably had seen other men go to that inner prison before, and they knew what those other men had done, begged for mercy and cried. All of a sudden, from that dark corner, echoing off the stone walls of a Philippian jail, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I just imagine the prisoners saying, having no category for what's happening. They've never seen anything like this. They're just in their rooms looking down the hallway. Where is that coming from? What are the words they're saying? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The prisoners just on their knees. Who are these people on death row, beaten and bloodied? Singing like this. You see, it tells us that they were put in in clasps. 
They, they, these are not just regular clasps like handcuffs. See, the way they did in the Roman days is the clasps themselves were torture devices that would spread your legs at nearly a breaking angle and curl your toes downwards. So they were in excruciating pain. Amazing grace. And the prisoners were just completely bewildered. That such a man, such men, could suffer that deeply. And at midnight, when every other man they ever saw was begging for mercy and crying, were singing their hearts out to their God how good grace is. Prisoners were listening. Friends, when you suffer joyfully in the Lord, something happens around you. People take notice of your life. They're watching you. This is one of the strongest witnesses you have. The gospel is not that you get a get out of suffering free card. That is not what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, you're going to suffer. Come follow me. Remember, pick up your cross. That's a torture device. The kingdom of God comes with much persecutions. That's Jesus's language. We skip over that phrase. This world is filled with dangers. It's filled with toils. It's filled with snares. It's filled with brokenness. And half the time it comes at our own fault. And in the midst of all the suffering, everyone's looking in to see, are we any different than the guy next to us? Can they see us joyfully clinging to God? I don't know what you're going through today. I know what I'm going through today. I know what my family is going through today. And I know that what I'm saying, I'm preaching to myself because this is very, very difficult to do. It takes a a faith that's being formed in the gospel. It takes a faith that's actually knowing Jesus, that's living in this abiding relationship where day in, day out, you're falling on your knees before the King of Kings who saved you by grace alone, and you're saying, you're worthy. Now form the gospel in me because when suffering comes, I want to be that guy. I want to be that woman who sings who sings so others can see the gospel is good enough even in the midst of my suffering. It's easy to say, blessed be your name when your hedges are trimmed, when all is as it should be. It's easy. It's very difficult when your world is falling apart to say, blessed be your name. That's where faith is most clearly seen, though. Prisoners were listening. As it turns out, the Lord had mighty plans for these circumstances. You see, no circumstance in your life goes to waste. The Lord knows it all. He knows it before you get there. He knows everything you're gonna go through. And he's got plans that are bigger than your plans. And he has means that are bigger than your means. Let's pick up in verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here, every prisoner, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds. 
He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, I want to go through the details of what just happened in that, just the same way I went through the details of what happened before. The Lord sent an earthquake that shook the entire prison. This was an earthquake that all of Philippi would have felt. It was strong enough to shake prison doors and shake them off their hinges. It was strong enough to break the hinges that were holding prisoners to the walls. That was the level of earthquake that hit Philippi in order to make this moment happen. See, sometimes we go through suffering and we're asking the Lord to to respond in a very specific way. Here's what I need, Lord. You think Paul and Silas ever imagined an earthquake is what they needed? They had no idea what they needed. They they had no clue what the Lord was going to do. But the Lord has means at his disposal that are far beyond anything we would ever ask him to do. They're far better. The results his way always work better. Sometimes we pray such small prayers asking to get out of the momentary struggle we're in when what God's asking us to pray is, God, you are a God that can send earthquakes. And so here I am and here's my suffering. Whatever you're going to do through it, Lord, I'm all in. So just do it because I'm with you. I'm listening. I want to see it when you do it. We pray the wrong prayers, but God's got earthquakes at his disposal. See, if we realize that, that changes our perspective The jailer wakes up. Now, I've already told you what happens to a jailer when he loses his prisoner. Now, the jailer probably was at home, wakes up to the earthquake, and goes, oh, no. If anyone escaped, I was given specific orders not to let anything happen to Paul and Silas. So he races from his house to the jail. This poor jailer gets to the door, and what's the first thing he sees? He looks into the first level of the jail, and all the doors are open. He looks a little deeper And those doors are open. And he realizes he's probably got 24 hours to live. His whole world has just fallen apart. And so what does he do? He takes his sword out and he's about to commit suicide. He lost his men that they told him, you lose them, you die. He lost them. And so he better take his own life before they take his life from him. The jailer believed it was all over. Look at the contrast between Paul and the jailer for a moment. Both men, considering they have 24 hours to live. One of them is singing hymns to the Lord. One of them is taking a sword out to kill himself. The jailer has no foundation for life. What was his foundation? He didn't know the God of the Bible. He didn't know the gospel. He was building his foundation on the same thing that most people in our city are building their foundation on. And the problem when you build your foundation on your job, when you build your foundation on anything other than Jesus Christ and the gospel, any other foundation than Jesus and the gospel, is that when one day you wake up and an earthquake made all the doors open on the jail, the only thing you have left is absolute, total depression and losing yourself. That's where he's at. He takes the sword out. He's got nothing left. His whole life is over. It's done. There's no foundation left. Look at the contrast. Let me be honest with you. More often than not in suffering, I reflect the jailer. This week has been a reflective week for Rafe on this passage. The Lord's been asking, how do you suffer? And on our best days, I think we all like to pretend we're Paul. 
And I think there's a bit of a spectrum. I think sometimes it's like we're leaning towards Paul and other times the gas meter's running low and we're the jailer. And I think it's really important that we take an honest inventory right now. Which one reflects you in the last six months? The jailer whose whole foundation got pulled out from underneath him sinks into depression, suicidal thoughts, no foundation of where to move, stuck. Paul, bleeding in the back of the prison, feet in stocks in torture, singing hymns to the Lord. Which one exemplifies the last year of your life? I'm often the jailer. But look at the Lord's tenderness, how he corrects the jailer. He comes, he meets this jailer right where he's at, in his brokenness. This is how the Lord works. He doesn't wait till you get yourself better. He meets you in your brokenness. The, the jailer's got a sword out and he's about to fall on it to take his life. And all of a sudden, a voice says, do not harm yourself, we're all here. I, I, can you imagine this moment? He's standing, looking down at the jail and he's, all of a sudden, he hears a voice from the pit, from the, the darkest corner. We're all here. So he grabs a lantern. That's what it says. He grabs a light. And I can just imagine his hands shaking and the, and, and the flames, shadows kind of going off the walls as he's going deeper through the newest, you know, each corridor into the darkest parts. He gets to the pitch black part and rats are running by his feet. And he looks and he shines the lantern in there. A room full of hardened criminals, recently converted to Jesus Christ under the teaching of Paul and Silas. Not one of them left. Every one of them would rather pay the justice for their crimes they did and be a Christian than run for their lives. It says he trembled and fell back to his knees in fear. That's about the right response in that moment. I imagine he lost it. He cries out, what must I do to be saved? I, I, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you and your whole household will be saved. So here's what happens. In your life, you're gonna be around people who are going through tremendous hardship. I'm shifting it from you. We all go through hardship. But then you're gonna have some jailers in your life and their world's gonna come out from underneath them someday. And they might not use the language of this jailer, what must I do to be saved? but their cries for help are asking that question. And the savvy Christian who knows their Bible and has done enough homework on human nature will look out at others going through suffering and look at their strange behavior and look at the mistakes they're making and look at their brokenness. And, and rather than saying, why do they keep doing that? Know that what they're asking in their actions is what must I do to be saved? And then the Christian, like Paul, comes up next to them and lovingly says, in your own suffering, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll have a new foundation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and your sins will be forgiven and God will establish you with the life that is truly life and he won't change all your circumstances but it will be enough for you and you'll be singing hymns the next time you go through hardship in your life because that's what you were made for. That's what you'll do in eternity and God invites you to do it now right here in this jail cell with us. You and your whole household, bring them all in. The gospel's for them too. And that prisoner received, that jailer received the gospel and he starts to wash their wounds. 
I love that moment. That, that says to me, this jailer, the only thing he knows to do in this moment is look at these men who he was in charge of who only hours ago he thought they were fools and he starts to clean the scabs off their back with warm water and say, how can I care for you? I'm a Christian now. You're gonna be in people's lives. People hit Ecclesiastes moments where suddenly they realize their foundations are just vanity, dust blowing in the wind. And they need someone to come alongside them in their brokenness and say, the gospel's for you, you need Jesus. When I was in Thailand, uh, I was a missionary for a number of years, not for a number of years, for a year in Thailand. Had this moment happen. I was just uh, doing discipleship with a friend of mine who came to faith in Jesus when I was in Thailand. It was this amazing story and a good friend of mine, and we still keep in touch 13, 12 years later or so. And I was meeting with him this week and praying with him and really sweet to see his life. But I was remembering the day he came to the Lord. It's an interesting story. I was... Uh, very sick. It was right towards the end of my year. We had just made a trip, me and a handful of friends to the border of Burma, and I had picked up something when I was there. And I came back, and I, it was the sickest I've ever been in my life. I lost about 20 pounds, three days, couldn't get out of bed, couldn't see, couldn't open my eyes. I could see if I could open my eyes, but I was just so dizzy, I couldn't keep my eyes open. Uh, it was bad. It was really bad. Eventually, I had to go to the hospital, and he was not a Christian, but was the most faithful friend during that whole season. And he sat by me. He would bring me chicken broth in the morning and just would sit with me and, and uh, just be in the room. He was staying over at my place uh, where I was living that third night when I was real sick. And he ended up taking me to the hospital the next day. But he was staying at my place and in the middle of the night, about midnight, he, he said, Rafe, can I pray for you? Now, he's not a Christian. He said, can I pray for you? And I wanna be honest, if I look back on that, I was the jailer, <laughs> okay? That's how I suffered during that, clearly. This is not a, I did this the right way. I was the jailer, suffering poorly. He said, can I pray for you? I said, you know what, I'll take it. He prays for me. And you know what happened? I had about an hour of clarity, felt on top of the world. I felt like I'd go to the soccer field and play a full game of soccer for an hour. I sat up in the bed. I wasn't sweating anymore. I looked at him, I said, <laughs> I feel great. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, whatever God's doing, I'm feeling good. And we got to talk about the gospel right then and there. And he accepted Jesus right there in that room. I went to bed, woke up feeling as sick as I ever was, went to the hospital. <laughs> but the Lord, in the midst of suffering, granted just a sweet, precious moment. I wonder on reflection, if that was the reason I got that sick and lost those 20 pounds. See, the Christian, th th this is what Christians learn, right? This is what we do. This is why we, this, these are the lessons we learn and then we do better the next time. You're not sick on accident. You're not suffering on accident. You're not going through the hard stuff on accident. The Lord knows it. He knows it all. He wrote it. He knows the story. He knows where it ends. He knows everything. He's not surprised by any of our circumstances. We're surprised because we're not God. He's God. But I wonder if I was sick because my friend needed to come to the Lord. And if that was the case, then like the person I told you about earlier from our church, I wouldn't change it for the world. I'll take it any day. Lord's plans are really good. And what he asks us to do in the midst of suffering is to learn from scriptures, to open our hands up to the Lord and say, God, what are you doing? I'm open. Here's my heart. 
I, want, I just want to be in your will. And I want to see you glorified in the midst of this. There are Holy Spirit-filled moments in a Christian's life where we have to learn these things. For Christians, suffering is purposeful. You will be tempted to believe the lie, the lie that your suffering does not have a purpose, the lie that the Lord does not have means at his disposal that he can use and will use to accomplish his purposes. You'll be tempted to believe the lie that you're on your own, You'll be tempted to believe the lie that somehow God's forgotten you. Somehow God, God's promises are not true in your life. You'll be tempted to believe the lie in the midst of suffering that there's no way this can get ever resolved and all the worst case scenarios you could ever happen are going to be the way it turns out and this thing's never gonna go away and that thing's never gonna change. We're tempted to believe it all. You know why? Because we're up against an accuser. He's a great deceiver and we believe all the lies sometimes. And that's why we have to cling to the Lord every single day and say, Lord, here's the reality. I know you're in control. Your promises are true. I'm clinging to you. I'll never forget, there was a story, uh, a friend of mine, he was in our Bible study years ago. Sarah, you'll remember this guy. He was only in our Bible study for a few, uh, few weeks, I think. But we went around one night telling our testimonies. And, uh, and he told this amazing story of how he came to faith. It was one of those just miraculous that can't, even, that can't be real stories. So he, he had come to the end of himself like the jailer. I don't know, I don't remember the backstory, but he had come to his moment, his Ecclesiastes moment. And he fell down on his knees in front of a window on the second floor of a building. And he cried out, God, if you're real, give me a sign. And at that moment, a lightning bolt struck the telephone pole across the parking lot from his window. An explosion happened and a wood chip from the telephone pole flew right into the window where he was, hit him in the chest, and fell on the ground in front of him. <laughs> and he pulled the wood chip out. He, he drilled a hole in it and put a, ne- a necklace around it. And he wore it on him every day to remind him of how he came to the Lord. Incredible. You know, I wonder what the Christians in that neighborhood were thinking when that lightning bolt struck. What happened to our cable? Come on! Oh, comment, I'm gonna be on hold for three hours. We've all been on hold with comment for three hours. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> we're complaining about cable, and the Lord just used a lightning bolt to save someone's life. Let's stop there for let's just pause in this for a second. Okay. If we get through COVID and we haven't figured this out, we are the biggest group of knuckleheads that ever read their Bibles, okay? God has plagues at his disposal. God has thunderbolts at his disposal. He certainly has earthquakes at his disposal. And if we go through an entire plague and don't get a biblical worldview to say, I'm awake, God, I see it. I was thinking wrong. And we we go through the rest of our life every time there's a lightning bolt, complaining that there's cable going out and not realizing the Lord probably just saved somebody. We go through a traffic jam and and we're just complaining, I'm gonna be an hour late to where I'm going and not realizing, you think the Lord doesn't know what he's doing? You, You think he doesn't have a plan? You don't think he knows you're gonna be an hour late? And we go through just complaining about every little thing that happens, not realizing the lightning bolts the Lord's, the earthquakes the Lord's, every molecule's the Lord's. 
This, this is what we have to learn from the book of Acts. Everything's the Lord's. He's working all things together for his glory and for our good. And if we get through the whole thing and nothing changes and we just think all this stuff and every lightning bolt and every mosquito bite and every sickness and every hardship and every broken family situation we have and every, you name it. And we don't see the Lord's orchestration behind it. And we just keep going through life as if it's all the same. We didn't read the Bible and we didn't get any lessons out of COVID. Well, we missed it. Maybe the Lord's trying to teach us something and wake us up to have a biblical worldview where we stop complaining about the things that are happening around us and start realizing God's got a plan and he's inviting you to cling to him in the midst of that. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one to four. Let us run with endurance the race that's before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, He is the example. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Church, cling to Christ. He's bigger than your fears. He's stronger than your enemy. He's stable in the storm. He has tools at his disposal that you do not understand. And he is worthy. Pray with me. Father, tonight I am preaching to myself more than ever. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to teach this to me and teach this to us as a church. I am an infant, Lord, in this. God, don't let us leave here the same as when we came in. Touch our hearts right now, Holy Spirit. Do something remarkable. Lord, I confess to you that we are a church that is tired of making the same mistakes over and over again not learning our lessons, not clinging to you in the midst of the storm in new ways, not exhibiting faith when it's most important. And God, I I admit to you and confess to you that we are just weak. We're human, we're fragile. Jesus, you did this perfectly and, and we're not even close. We go through the smallest hardship, just a fraction of what you endured. And we crumble. And it all becomes about us. And Lord, I'm asking in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the blood of the Lamb, by the resurrected Messiah, that you would insert courageous faith into your church. Right now, in the name of Jesus, that our perspective would change, Lord. I want to think like Paul. I want to sing like Paul. I want to have a ministry like Paul. I don't want to be the jailer. And so, Lord, we bring to you our suffering and our struggling and our brokenness and our sin and all the stuff you already know about. Psalm 119 says, my my soul clings to the dust. 
I know that feeling. And then it says, give me life according to your word. Lord, I pray for this church and the suffering and the hardship they're going through. The things that they don't share with me or with other people, but are on their hearts. And the things that you're working on their heart right now in this moment. I give it over to you, Lord. With them, right alongside them, as their brother in Christ, I give it over to you. It's yours. Church, I invite you to hold your hands open like this just for a moment. And just in your own way before the Lord, say, it's yours, Lord. It's yours, Lord. And then, Jesus, I ask even bigger prayers than that, actually, Lord. I, I also ask, Lord, that... Um, that we would be a church that collectively sings mightily to the Lord. Not just in independent moments, Lord, but together we're the kind of church that suffers the way the church always has. We do it together and we, we bleed together and we sing together. Holy Spirit, don't let us leave here unchanged. Whatever you're doing right now, God, do it in me first and do it in this whole church, please. We cling to you. We need you. In Jesus' powerful, mighty, and perfect name.